seven, Stan Phillips. Good morning, Met fans. Happy Friday. How you doing? Well, we had a day off yesterday so we can get our bearings together and figure out what's going on in Metland, what can happen in the future, what's happened, and where we stand right now. Now, I know a lot of Met fans just looking at social media are crying, the sky is falling, but it's not falling. Every team goes into little slumps now and then. It just so happened we had ours against the Houston Astros. And when you're going to slump against the Astros... Uh, that's probably the wrong team to slump against because you're going to look bad. But the good news is we have a three-game series with the Texas Rangers to get back on track tonight. And the Braves, despite coming all the way back to be only three and a half games out, the hardest part is to actually pass a team after making up all those games. Sooner or later, you're going to lose steam. And as I mentioned on this podcast earlier in the year, uh, the Braves had probably the easiest schedule in baseball in June, and the Mets had the hardest schedule. And after all is said and done, the Mets are still in first place. So we dodged a bullet. It's July 1st. We turn the page, and we move on. So it's not the end of the world, folks. Uh, but you always want to look to improve, and pretty soon the trade deadline is coming here. Now, the DH spot has been a trouble area for the Mets this season, but they may be able to find their answer in the AL East. Uh, it looks like the Mets are one of the teams checking in on Trey Mancini, whose market is really heating up. Mancini would be a perfect fit. I don't know if it's going to work out, but he's a 30-year-old right-handed hitter. He's slashing 280, 356, 421 for the Orioles this season with seven homers and 30 RBIs in 68 games. Mancini has proven to be a power threat every time he steps in the box launching 114 home runs in 677 career games. His best power numbers came in 2019 when he hit 35 homers in 154 games. Now, whether it's J.D. Smith, Dom Smith, or anyone else, the Mets' DH options, options haven't been productive enough this season. Let's be honest. And with the team's designated hitters slashing just 228, 308, 379 with eight home runs, that's not really a great designated hitter situation that the Mets have had. Five of those home runs have come from Pete Alonso, who has been a DH in 17 games this season. So take away Pete from the equation. We really haven't done that well in the DH area. Now Mancini would give the Mets another veteran hitter who can play the corner outfield spots, as well as first base to give Alonso a spell. More importantly though, he could potentially solve the team's DH woes. So let's keep an eye on that as we progress. Now the one thing I love hearing about all this is the Mets will not give up top prospects. According to team sources, Mets officials from the Baseball Operations Department all the way up to owner Steve Cohen are against moving Francisco Alvarez, Brett Beatty, or their few other high-end prospects in order to fill holes on the Major League Club. They would strongly prefer to use their financial advantage to improve the team. And no one has differed from that opinion. And that is one thing I am glad to see. You, the, ultimately, you build up your organization through draft choices and bringing up teams through the minor league system and you build a culture. 
with Steve Cohen, we have that culture now. And in a few years, when these minor leaguers find out how great the Met culture is, a winning attitude will be installed in the minor league system. Now, one factor influencing the Mets' thinking is the success this year in the minor leagues of Pete Crow Armstrong, who was sent to the Chicago Cubs last summer in the Javier Baez-Trevor Williams deal. Pitcher J.T. Ginn traded to Oakland A's this spring for Chris Bassett as a 6.48 ERA in the minors this year, but scouts remain high on his potential. The Mets know that this year's approach makes the acquisition of top starters like Oakland's Frankie Montaz or the Reds' Louis Castillo less likely. As such, they are focused on two areas, trading lesser prospects and maybe a Dom Smith or J.D. Davis if possible for late-inning bullpen help and taking an onerous contract for a veteran hitter. The later point is one that the team is taking a close look at. Earlier in the season, Cincinnati's Mike Moustakas and the San Diego Padres' Eric Hosmer were perfect examples of the strategy, but both have trailed off lately. Charlie Blackman, the Colorado Rockies, is another player who fits this profile. The Mets know that an upgrade at DH is necessary. Before the season, the team had hoped that some combination of Davis and Smith could fill the position, and I thought that would have been the ideal DH platoon, but it's just not working. Davis was always murderous against lefties, and Dom Smith during the COVID year was one of the best hitters in baseball, but has yet to recapture that magic. And things haven't worked out really well for either one of them. Now, let's be honest, they also expected much more production from Eduardo Escobar, and he has really tailed off of late. And uh, people were wondering if a less lively baseball has reduced his power to the warning track variety. And uh, he could be one of those marginal players when it comes to power, where that ball does make the difference. Now, at the moment, the Mets are less focused on the idea of taking on a bad contract as a way to acquire a second more valuable player. If they change course on that before the trade deadline, an example would be acquiring the expensive and ineffective Patrick Corbin from the Washington Nationals, along with slugger Josh Bell, who could DH for them. So we'll see what transpires. What is happening right here and right now is the fact that after a long, long wait, Jacob DeGrom could be getting a rehab assignment with the St. Lucie Mets on Monday. If DeGrom pitches on Sunday, it will be his first game action since August 7th. Since DeGrom is building back up from such a long absence, he will likely need three or four rehab starts before returning to the majors. Now, DeGrom threw 27 pitches on Wednesday morning in Port St. Lucie during what was his second live batting practice as he works his way back from a shoulder injury. Manager Buck Showalter told reporters, adding that they would have to see how DeGrom felt on Thursday before determining his next steps. So we'll find out eventually, probably sometime today, if DeGrom is going Sunday. Uh, the Mets are going to wait and see how he feels. They have a scheduled workout and know what will happen if everything feels well tomorrow. But the Mets don't want to get ahead of it yet. So tomorrow, if he feels well, we'll probably be able to talk about what the next steps are for Jacob DeGrom. Now, Max Scherzer's rehab start for AA Binghamton, specifically scheduled for Tuesday in Hartford, was moved to Wednesday. So both guys are on the up and up as far as coming back, and it won't be long. We just need to be patient, Met fans. Uh, we have the All-Star break coming up, and it looks like Two Met players have made the cut for the final round. Pete Alonzo, who's in second place at first base, and Starling Marte, who's in fourth place in the outfield. 
The second round voting will start at noon on July 5th, where fans will once again cast their votes between the finalists. The votes from the first round will not carry over to the second round. Voting will end at 2 p.m. on July 8th, before the stars is revealed that night at 7 p.m. on ESPN. Pitchers and reserves will be voted on by players, with selections being determined by the commissioner's office on July 10th and announced at 5.30 on ESPN. Now, the Midsummer Classic being held at Dodger Stadium. We'll have to see a game at Dodger Stadium, and it will be aired on Fox. So some Mets will be there. We just have to figure out who we're going to be there. Uh, it's always interesting to see what is going to happen. And uh, as far as, like, the Met prospects coming up, what is going to happen there? Uh, a lot of buzz that Wilson Alvarez may come up. And the way he is lighting it up, you may want to consider bringing him up. He could be. He could be that missing bat in the Met lineup. But we'll see. You don't want to rush Wilson Alvarez. If there's a game plan where you think he can get by and win the pennant with McCann and Nito and Mazikas, Mazika, I should say, then I say stick with that, but it's very tempting to dip into the minor league system and call up Alvarez now. We'll see what happens. Now, we know the Mets are sparing no expense to do what they need to do to be a winner. And uh, one of the things they have done is acquire a very futuristic pitching machine. <clears throat> the Mets' expensive toy is assembled and operational and provides hitters with another tool in their constant quest for an edge. Now, during the team's West Coast trip in early June, a high-tech pitching machine arrived at City Field that allows hitters to program in a specific pitcher. The machine responds by mimicking that pitcher's delivery and spin rate. Spin rate. Brandon Nimmo said, I haven't gotten used to it, and it's nice. He has gotten used to it, I should say, and it's nice. The funny thing is you find out how much information you get from pitchers in real life that you don't get from video. But it's nice to be able to get into routine and rhythm, and whenever that wind-up may be, whatever the stretch might be. It's extremely helpful to see what the spin might look like on their breaking balls, fastballs, all of that. I wouldn't say exactly like going out there and hitting off a big lead pitcher, but it's pretty darn close, and it's a tool that we definitely have used and will continue to use and work into our routines. So the Mets are actually going ahead and doing what they need to do to win, and you got to love that. What a difference it means with Steve Cohen in charge. Now, the Mets are among the few teams that possess the machine, which was developed by a Canadian company called Tragic. The equipment is cumbersome enough that it doesn't travel with the team, and players, per an MLB rule, aren't allowed to use it once the games begin. Francisco Endor said, I think it's helped some guys. I haven't used it enough to say, yeah, it's definitely helped me, but I know some guys think it's great. Now, in Doors' case, a different approach to pregame swings in the batting cage may limit his exposure to the new machine. When Doors says, I hit machines with different baseballs. I don't hit the hard baseballs because I get jammed and then I hit it off the end, and then you get stingers. I use a little softer baseball. The ball is traveling a little faster from machine than regular BP, and if you hit it off the end, it hurts. Nimmo credited owner Steve Cohen for agreeing to the expenditure. A Mets source estimated the machine costs about 10 times more than any other machine they have. And Nimmo said, we're able to, with Steve, obviously get tools and anything that can help the team he's willing to bring in. This is one of those tools that's going to be helpful, but by no means is it actually going to end up uh, being like facing Sandy Alcantara, but it's a helpful tool. Hitting coach Eric Chavez said there is no way of quantifying the effect of the new pitching machine, but he is a big fan of the technology. 
Chavez says, I like it personally. We can't duplicate anything that happens in the game. But it's the closest thing we've got. Chavez says, I'm not playing anymore and how they're going to use it moving forward. I'm not sure. I'm just there for whoever wants it. Now, if the Mets have a secret weapon of any kind, of the human kind, it might be replay coordinator Harrison Friedwin, who arrived at the organization last winter. With Friedwin, who previously worked in MLB's replay control center in Manhattan, the Mets have been successful in 77.3% of their challenges, easily the highest in the majors. As of Wednesday, the team led MLB with 17 calls overturned on replay. Take last Friday in Miami when Buck Showalter got two calls overturned on the same play. The reversals prevented a Mets double play and fueled a rally that helped beat the Marlins. I love walking in there after a game. Friedwin is so proud of being able to help our team, Showalter said. I take that home at night. Somebody where you know how they feel good about it and they should. I think what Harrison gets, having been in that room in New York, he knows I'm probably right, but they won't overturn it because he knows what kind of evidence they need to overturn it. Keep it in mind he's doing this in 20 seconds. Now, Joey Cora left an early imprint with his work preparing the Met infielders in addition to coaching third base. His methods are different from those of his predecessor, Gary DeSarcina, but players have come to appreciate Cora's approach. When Doris said DeSarcina was mellow and very smart, he helped me in a lot in the sense that I was always looking at him and he was like, move this way, move this way. DeSarcina was helping me in game pitch after pitch because that is how I did it with the Indians. I looked and they told me where to move. Joey, before the game, he's very prepared, but during the game, you're on your own. If you look at him, yeah, he'll move you. Sometimes he sees things I don't see. When Doris said he was a six-year-old in Puerto Rico when he first met Cora, who hails from the same hometown. In later years, when Dor became tight with Cora's brother Alex, the former Major League infielder and current Red Sox manager. Joey has left a mark with his aggressiveness as a third-base coach. When Dor said, always be ready to score with Cora at third base. We all know that, and we know that as soon as we touch second base and we look at third base, we're trying to score. Now, how about age? Age is a state of mind. We all stumble across that movie and flipping through the channels that we can't bypass regardless of how many times we've seen it. At or near the top of my list is a natural. And uh, I don't mean to digress, but it's just a great movie. Uh, It's amazing, amazing, amazing that you know it's not true, but you can't help but watch it. And that's my thoughts on the natural. Sorry, I digressed from the Mets there for a second. I had it on my notes, and it was on the wrong page, but it was in my Met notes, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Hope you enjoyed it. And let us not forget, today is Bobby Bonilla Day. Bobby's contract has to be one of the 10 worst sports contracts of all time. A celebration always happens on this day and will continue through 2035 as the 59-year-old collects his $1,193,248.20 check from the team each time this year. Bobby Bonilla's infamous deal is often considered the worst sports contract of all time, but the seemingly never-ending agreement is in good company. Here's a look at the 10 most egregious contracts to help happen in sports history. Number one, of course, is Bobby Bonilla. Despite retiring from baseball in 2003 and not donning a Met uniform since the 1999 season, Benia can expect a deferred payment of nearly $1.2 million as mailbox on July 1st, courtesy of his former ball club. The deal would cease Benia receiving payments every year from 2011 to 2035, 
came to fruition before the 2000 season when the Mets released him and turned the remaining $5.0 million owed to him into $29.8 million. If Benilla were to take the field again, he'd immediately rank as the 20th highest paid player on the Mets' active roster payroll. Now, some of the other contracts, how about Miguel Cabrera? Eight years, $248 million. That goes through the 2023 season. How about Gilbert Arenas, Washington Wizards? Six years, $111 million. How about former Nick Joaquin Noah? Four years, $72 million. How about Albert Pujols? Great, great player before he went to the Angels, but was he really worth 10 years at $240 million? And how about this Yankee bus, Jacoby Ellsbury, seven years at $153 million. And for all you hockey fans out there, how about Ilya Kovacek, 15 years, $100 million. How about Chris Davis, who disintegrated overnight, basically, seven years, $161 million. And how about Rick DiPietro, who gets $1.9 million every year through 2029. How about Jay Cutler to Bears, seven years, $126.7 million. So as many good contracts as there are out there, there are a lot of bombs. So Met fans, don't despair. We're not the only team that made a mistake giving out a contract like we did Benilla. Other teams do it also. Now we've been hearing a lot of talk about Wilson Alvarez and Brett Beatty, but how about Mark Vientos? As the Mets weigh acquisitions ahead of the trade deadline, they could use a right-handed bat. They finished play Wednesday as the 19th best team in the majors against left-handed pitchers with a 7.02 OPS. Yeah, their, mo their most obvious holes, as we mentioned, outside a catcher, which would be tricky to upgrade midseason unless we bring up Wilson Alvarez, are designated here in third base. Well, they kind of got their man here who plays both positions in the minors, and that would be Mark Vientos. Uh, like I said, Alvarez looks like the option, but on the other hand, Vientos is the number five prospect according to MLB Pipeline in the Mets organization. He is ready on the 40-man roster and might be better positioned to help right away. Uh, whenever he gets the opportunity, he'll, know, he'll be ready, Vientos says. They give me an opportunity now, later, next year, the year after, doesn't matter. When the opportunity comes, he'll be ready. Vientos is 22. He was a second-round pick at American... Heritage High School in Plantation, Florida in 2017, and he broke out last season when he swatted 25 home runs in 83 games, split between AA and AAA, nearly a 50 homer pace for a full major league season, and showed advanced power to all fields. This season is one of the youngest players in the International League. He had one at-bat against a pitcher younger than him. Vientos struggled in April when he hit 164 with one homer. Since May 2nd, Vientos has covered in has been covered in flames, even as pitchers have adjusted and given him fewer pitches to hit and fewer fastballs. Entering Thursday, he had 11 home runs in his past 33 games with a slash line at 291, 388, and 575 during that span. His manager, Kevin Bowles, pointed at improved plate discipline for a turnaround. Though his 31.2% strikeout rate was slightly up this season, he has cut down from his April whiffs. Once it started to heat up a little bit, you could see the approach starting getting better said Bowles, who also worked with Vientos as a minor league instructor last season. He can leave the park to all parts of the field. That's why he's so special. He hit a ball to right field Wednesday night that a lot of left-handed hitters have a hard time getting to. Perhaps most intriguing to the Mets, he does the bulk of his damage against southpaws. The Mets have played J.D. Davis most of the time at DH against lefties, while Davis has begun to see his hard hits start to fall. The righty hitter has actually hit righty pitchers better and has just a 655 OPS against lefties. Vientos has a bona fide lefty killer in the minors. 
Uh, he has been hitting 291 with seven home runs and 63 plate appearance against Southpaws, entering play against the Lehigh Valley Philly AAA affiliate last night. The power is legit. His glove is a more work in progress, and that's something the Mets have to keep an eye on because defense is important with the Mets. Vientos has spent most of his time this season at third base, and the Mets could see if he's playable there. Mets primary third baseman Eduardo Escobar has struggled against righties, which might have opened the door for Louis Guillaume to get more looks at the position. But Vientos, who has also played some first, made 11 errors in his first 53 games this season, so is more likely to help at DH. He's gotten better. His third base footwork needs to improve. Uh, the Mets are seeing signs of that, and the glove work will lead to that when the footwork improves. Now, the arm strength plays, arm strength plays average to above average, but there needs to be more consistency at third base, and he's working on it. Defense is going to have to be a big part of Viento's game. Uh, so once he masters playing defense a little bit better with his prodigious power, uh, he kind of reminds everyone of Pete Alonso at this stage because they had to work on their defensive game. And uh, he's even using a heavier bat like Pete Alonso. He uses a 33-ouncer. And since then, even Viento says that he's hitting more home runs. Now, maybe the Mets will trade for someone such as Nelson Cruz to plug the DH role. Uh, maybe stick with Davis. Uh, maybe bring up Alvarez. But if Vientos is the pick, he could be another Pete Alonso. You never know. You never know. Now it's time to go and talk about this date in Met history. Today we celebrate three birthdays. Chris Craig Anderson, original Met, born in 1938. Michael Waka, born in this date in 1991. And Chris Flexen, born this date in 1994. Now, some transactions made on this date in Met history. The Mets traded Charles, Charlie Neal and Sammy Taylor to the Cincinnati Reds for Jesse Gonder on July 1st, 1963. This date in 1971, the Mets released Al Weiss. On this date in 1995, the Mets signed free agent Alex Escobar. On this date in 2003, the Mets finally cut ties with Roberto Omar, who lived way below expectations with the Mets by trading him to the White Sox for Royce Ring, Eldwin Amante, and Andrew Salvo. Now here's our time for our shameless plugs. If you're not a subscriber to this podcast, please do subscribe. We upload one almost every day. So your favorite carrier will notify you when a new one is uploaded. And if you're not a member of the baseball Facebook group, New York Mets Baseball Way Life, please do. This podcast is the companion to that group. And uh, a lot of things that we don't talk about here may be on that group. And you want to check that out. Good stuff every day. Great contributions every day. Uh, Some of the contributions that we talk about, well, let's get to it. Oh, you know what we want to do as we do every day in that group? is we do the Met Trivia and Jeopardy question of the day. Who's ready for that? Okay, raise your hands. I see you guys are. And that is always pleasant to see. Today's Met Trivia question. Which Met player was featured briefly in the movie Men in Black? And today's Mets final Jeopardy. As a member of the Philadelphia Phillies was selected to the 1999 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. He was traded by the Mets to the Atlanta Braves in exchange for Gregory Michael on November 25th, 1996. Lock in your answers, and we'll be back at the end of the podcast to see how you did. Hopefully you guys did good. 
Now, what's going on in the Facebook group itself? Well, Don Kecko had a great video posted of Duke Snyder's 400th career home run. Got to check it out in Lindsey Nelson's call. So good hearing Lindsey's voice. I loved it. And on this date in 1962, Sandy Koufax becomes the first Dodgers southpaw to throw a no-hitter since Knapp Rucker accomplished a feat in 1908 when he keeps the expansion Mets hitless in the team's 5-0 victory over Los Angeles. The 26-year-old right left-hander and route to Fanning 13 strikes out the first three batters he faces, Richie Ashburn, Rod Keneal, and Felix Mantilla, on nine pitches to start the game with an immaculate inning. And seven years ago today, uh, I should say um, on Tuesday, Steve Matz became the only pitcher in MLB history with four-plus RBIs in his Major League debut game. Since then, he has gotten nine more RBIs in 149 games. It's unlikely to get any more thanks to Universal DH. And on this day in 2013, it was a tough day in American society. When a moment of silence before the game at City Field, the Mets and Diamondbacks honored, honored the 19 firefighters who died battling a wildfire in Yarnell, Arizona. Additionally, each team hangs a jersey with the road Yarnell stitched on the back above the number 19 in their respective dugouts. And we also honored the post of the month in the group, the most popular post in the group for the month, which was from Alan Lerner. And his question was, why did you become a Met fan? So folks, why did you become a Met fan? And of course, our good friend Mike Freed. Great commentary every day. And he's basically telling us, let's not panic. You got to check out Mike's daily contributions. Mike's a moderator in the group. And he's always a great read. Check him out. Now let's reminisce about the career of Craig Anderson, former Met. Anderson signed with the Cardinals as an amateur free agent prior to the 1960 season. He made his Major League debut on June 23, 1961. Anderson was selected by the Mets in the 61 expansion draft on October 10, 1961. He played from 62 to 64 with the Mets, and he led the Mets in appearances, with, in appearances and saves in 62. It was a team that ended up with a record 40 and 120, the most losses by any major league team in one season. On May 12, 1962, Anderson was the winning pitcher on both ends of that first doubleheader the Mets ever won. After winning those two games against the Milwaukee Braves, he lost his last 16 decisions that season. The losing streak would end at 19 games when Anderson's big league career ended on May 31, 1964. And that's when, Bill, he became the Mets' first pitcher to record two wins in a single day. Only two Met pitchers since have accomplished this, Willard Hunter and Jesse Orozco. On September 18, 1963, Anderson was the losing pitcher in the last baseball game ever played at the Polo Grounds when the Phillies behind lefty Chris Short beat the Mets 5-1. In 82 games, 17 of them starts, Anderson finished with a career record of 7 wins, 23 losses, 94 strikeouts, 120. 192.1 innings pitched, 34 games finished, and an ERA of 5.10. Now let's talk about former Met Michael Waka. The Cardinals selected Waka in the first round with the 19th overall, 19th overall selection of the 2012 Major League Draft. So he had a lot of eyeballs on him, and he was a prized prospect, and he signed for $1.9 million on June 14, 2012. 
His draft slot was originally belonging to the Los Angeles Angels, who upon signing Albert Pujols as a free agent, surrendered it to the Cardinals. Cardinal Director of Scouting Dan Kontravitz foresaw Waka as a future starter for the Cardinals, whose size and competitive nature drew favorable comparisons with right-handers Chris Carpenter and Adam Wainwright. Waka ascended quickly through the minor leagues. The Cardinals first assigned Waka to the Gulf Coast League and, and then promoted him to the Florida State League and finally the AA Texas League before the 2012 season ended. In 21 innings pitched between the three levels, he struck out 40 batters, allowing just eight hits, four walks, and two runs for a .86 ERA. With Springfield, he pitched eight innings, struck out 17 batters, and allowed just one home run. The Cardinals invited Waka to their Major League Spring Training Camp in 2013. He impressed team management and players alike, striking out 15 batters, while allowing only one walk and one earned run in 11 and two-third innings of work before being reassigned to the minor league camp. Waka started the 2013 with the Memphis Redbirds of the Class A Pacific Coast League, going 4-0 with a league-leading 2.05 ERA in nine games and started 52 and two-third innings pitched before his first call-up to the major leagues. His overall season totals at Memphis included a 2.65 ERA in 15 starts, 73 strikeouts, and 85 innings pitched. Now, in his rookie season 2013, he was activated on May 30th to make his major league debut against the Royals at Bush Stadium. Got off to a good start in the minors in 2013. He was 4-0 with a 2.05 ERA and nine starts from Memphis prior to his call-up. Just 364 days after throwing his last pitch for Texas A&M, Waka was standing on a major league mound for the first time. In his first at-bat in the majors, Waka singled to right center field. On the mound, he demonstrated the prodigious pitching ability that rapidly showed him through the minor leagues when he retired the first 13 Royals he faced for giving a hit a double in the fifth inning. That runner then scored after a hit. He pitched seven innings with 93 pitches, 67 strikes, giving up only two hits and one run, walking none and striking out six, leaving with a 2-1 lead. Waka lost the chance to win in the ninth when Mitchell Boggs relieved and gave up a tying home run to the first battery first faced. Now, unfortunately, the Diamondbacks scored six runs against Waka in a second start, which turned out to be a no decision on his part. Waka earned his first major league win on June 11th, who remembers this one, when he beat the Mets 9-2 at City Field. The game got off to a rough start as he gave up a home run to the second mid battery faced, walked three others, and saw his team fall behind two runs in the first inning. However, he rebounded and scattered five hits and no more walks over six total innings of work. Three days after earning his first major league win, the Cardinals optioned Waka back to Memphis to clear roster room for Jake Westbrook as he returned from the disabled list. During his stint with the Cardinals, Waka posted a 1-0 record with an ERA of 4.58 in three starts. The Cardinals recalled Waka in mid-August and he was on the roster to stay for the remainder of the season. He started one game against the Cubs before being moved to the bullpen. Manager Mike Matheny placed him on the back in the rotation in September. He pitched six shutout innings with just three hits against the Cincinnati Reds. Compassing his last regular season game and first three playoff appearances in 2013, Waka authored a series of masterful performances. On September 24th, he pitched a no-hitter through eight and two-third innings against the Washington Nationals that ended when Ryan Zimmerman stroked an infield single that glanced off Guaca's glove. Heartbreaker. It was Washington's only hit as the Cardinals prevailed 2-0. It was also the third no-hitter loss with the final out to go in the 2013 season after Hugh Darvish and Yusimiero Petit 
also failed. Walker finished his regular season in major leagues, appearing in 15 games, making nine starts, and pitching 64 and two-third innings. He surrendered 52 hits, 20 runs, five home runs, and struck out 65 hitters for a 2.78 ERA. Now, his first playoff experience came on October 7th. He started his first major league playoff game in seven and third innings of work in Game 4 of 2013 NLDS in elimination of game against the Pirates. He again surrendered one hit, a home run, and two walks. Due to Walker's back-to-back one-hit performances, Matheny announced that he would start Game 2 of the NLCS. In that game on October 12th, he outdueled Clayton Kershaw in six and two third innings for a one-nothing victory over Dodgers in just the 11th start of his major league career. Walker joined Bob Gibson as the only pitcher in franchise history to strike out eight batters while yielding one or no runs in consecutive postseason starts. Facing Kershaw again in Game 6, Walker yielded just two hits in seven, thing, seven innings as his opponent unraveled in a 9-0 victory that sent the Cardinals to the World Series. Waka won both of his NLCS starts, holding the Dodgers to a 149 batting average, two walks and 13 strikeouts in 13 and two-thirds scoreless innings as he pitched his way to the NLCS MVP. He became the fourth rookie to win an NL MVP player award in the postseason. The others were Larry Sherry in the 1959 World Series, Mike Boddicker in the 83 NLCS, and Vivian Hernandez in the 1997 NLCS and 97 World Series. Through the NLCS, Waka allowed just one run on eight hits and 21 innings pitched for a .43 ERA while striking out 22. Starting Game 2 of the World Series against Red Sox, Waka pitched six innings in a 4-2 Cardinal victory. Although he said after the game he didn't have his best stuff, before surrendering a home run to David Ortiz, Waka tied Gibson with the longest scoreless streak in Cardinals postseason history. Waka became the 17th youngest pitcher to win a World Series game and the second youngest in Cardinals history behind only Paul Dean. In Game 6, with the Cardinals facing elimination once more, Waka was again called upon to save their season after winning four consecutive playoff starts with a 1.00 ERA and just 11 hits allowed in 27 innings for a 122 opponent's batting average. However, the Red Sox finally solved him, tagging him for six runs in three and two-third innings on their way to defeating the Cardinals for their eighth World Series title. Now, Waka was guaranteed a regular spot in the rotation at the outset of 2014, and his first two starts came against the Reds, receiving one win and one no decision. He furthered a strong start against them. His first career, 22 and third innings pitched against them, including just 13 hits and five walks allowed, while 20 strikeouts and .40 ERA. On April 24th against our beloved Mets, Waka struck out nine batters in the first three innings. That was just the 11 such occurrence in the expansion era. With 41 miles per hour winds whipping, he struck out 10 in four innings, but also walked five and required 93 pitches. Two of the walks proved costly as they were with the bases loaded and the Mets took advantage with a 3-2 triumph. Walker's first 15 starts of the 2014 season included a 2.79 ERA and a 5-5 one-loss record. However, if they're pitching with lingering shoulder discomfort and fatigue in May and June, the Cardinals placed them on the DL on June 18th. A series of MRIs and computed tomography tests revealed an injury turned the stress reaction in the scapula behind his throwing arm. The stress reaction apparently was a case of the shoulder not repairing itself as fast as the strain from regular pitching had caused between the scapula bone and tendons. Although similar to the stress factor injury Brandon McCarthy suffered, it was deemed less severe. According to medical opinion, it was part of the game 
the same, I'm part of the same injury process, but Walker's injury had not progressed as far as McCarthy's as a fracture had yet to occur. Therefore, Cardinal GM John Mozellick stated as a precursor to stress fracture was a precursor to a fracture, it was more manageable to correct. With limited knowledge on the related biomechanical processes, the Cardinals training and medical staff research methods to treat Walker's injury and prevent the same course from happening again. Likewise, they were uncertain of when he was to return to play. Walker surrendered a series-ending three-run walk-off home run to Travis Ishiwaka, Ishikawa of the San Francisco Giants in the ninth inning of Game 5 of the 2014 NLCS as the Giants prevailed 6-3. Walker finished the 2014 season with a 5-6 record, 3.20 ERA, and 1.20 walks, plus hits per nine innings and 19 starts. Now, the Cardinals won each of Walker's first nine starts in 2015, while he was credited as the winner in seven of them. With an ERA of 1.87, he became the first Cardinal to start 7-0 since Matt Marr started 8-0 in 2005. He was selected to his first All-Star game, played at Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. The Cardinals skipped 10 days between two August starts over concern about his shoulder. To that point, he was 15-4 with a 2.69 ERA and a 1.12 walks per nine innings pitched. In Game 40 NLDS against the Giants, Walker surrendered three home runs in four and a third innings and an 8-6 loss. Walker started 30 games in 2015 when he went 17-7 with a 3.38 ERA. Walker struggled in 2016. He missed over a month due to right shoulder inflammation and finished the season with a 7-7 record in 27 games, 24 of which were starts, with a career-high 5.09 ERA and 1.48 walks plus per nine innings pitched. 2017, Walker stayed healthy the entire season and tied a career high and starts with 30. He finished with a 12-9 record and a 4.13 ERA, recording a 3.41 ERA at home and 4.97 ERA on the road. Now, on June 13, 2018, against the Pirates, Walker took a no-hitter through eight innings until giving him a leadoff single by Colin Moran in the ninth inning. Nevertheless, the Cards won 5-0. On June 21st, Walker was placed on a 10-day disabled list due to a left oblique strain and did not pitch the remainder of the year. For 2018, Walker made 15 starts, going 8-2 with a 3.20 ERA. Walker began the 2019 season healthy and a member of the Cardinals' rotation. After compiling a 5.59 ERA through nine starts, he was moved to the bullpen at the end of the May. End of May. He ultimately began appearing as a starter and a reliever, making 29 total appearances during the regular season, with 24 being starts. Over 126 and two-third innings pitched, he went 6-7 and seven with a 4.76 ERA and 104 strikeouts. Now, on December 13, 2019, that's when the Mets stepped in. The Mets signed Walker to a one-year contract for the 2020 season. With the Mets during the 60-game season, Walker pitched to a 1-4 record and a 6.62 ERA with 37 strikeouts in 34 innings from eight appearances, seven of which were starts. On December 16, 2020, Walker signed a one-year contract for $3 million with the Rays and 29 appearances. Walker pitched with a 3-5 record and a 5.05 ERA while striking out 121 batters in 124 and two-thirds innings. Now, on November 27, 2021, Walker signed a one-year contract with the Red Sox, reportedly worth $7 million. He began the season as a starter in Boston's pitching rotation. He was on the IL due to inter costal irritation from May 8th until May 20th. 
On June 6, 2022, Walker tossed a complete game shutout against the Los Angeles Angels, and he has walked only one batter while striking out six on 105 pitches in that game. It was also the second complete game and shutout of his career. It was the 10th complete game, one nothing shutout in Boston Red Sox history, and the first since June 7, when Kurt Schilling threw a complete game one-hitter in a one nothing win against the Oakland A's. Now let's look back and talk about the career of Chris Flexen. Flexen spent 2012 with the Kingsport Mets where he posted a 1-3, one loss record with a 5.63 ERA in seven games. Flexen returned to Kingsport for the 2013 season where he was 8-1 with a 2.09 ERA in 11 starts. In 2014, Flexen played for the Savannah Sand Nats where he was 3-5 with a 4.83 ERA in 13 starts. Flexen underwent Tommy John surgery in 2014. Flexen spent 2015 with Savannah, the Brooklyn Cyclones, and the GCL Mets, where he posted a combined 2.42 ERA in 12 games between the three clubs. 2016, he pitched for the St. Lucie Mets, where he was 10-9 with a 3.56 ERA and 25 starts. The Mets added him to their 40-man roster after the 2016 season. Flexen started 2017 with St. Lucie, and after posting a 2.13 ERA there while striking out over a batter per inning in three starts, he was called up to the Binghamton Rumble Ponies on May 31st. Flexen made his Major League debut on July 27, 2017 against the San Diego Padres at Petco Park. He gave up five hits on, in four runs in the start. He also became the fifth Met player in franchise history to give a home run to the first batter he faced in the major leagues after allowing one to Manuel Margot on only his third pitch. On August 8, 2017, Flexen recorded his first major league win against the Texas Rangers at City Field, pitching five and third innings, allowing three earned runs and striking out fourth batters, four batters, I should say. MLB.com ranked Flexen as the New York's, as the Mets' ninth best prospect going into the 2018 season. On May 19, 2019, Flexen, who started the season in the Pacific Coast League, was promoted to the Mets. He only made four appearances for the big league club, including one start. He struggled to a 12.79 ERA and a 3.16 whip over those outings. He underwent knee surgery in early August, ending his 2018, and he was designated for assignment on December 6, 2019. It was announced that Flexen signed a one-year contract with KBO's Doosan Bears, the reigning Korean series champion. Flexen pitched to a 3.01 ERA with 10.2 Ks per nine innings for the Bears in 2020. On December 9, 2020, Flexen signed a two-year, $4.75 million contract with the Mariners. He made the rotation to start the 2021 season and made his first start of the year on April 3rd against the San Francisco Giants. He pitched five scoreless innings, about four hits and two walks, struck out six batters, and was credited with the win. His 2021 season with Seattle represented a marked improvement from his past performances uh, with the Mets. And among qualified American League pitchers that year, he finished in the top 10 ERA, 3.61, wins 14, ERA plus 111, fielding independent pitching 3.89, and game started 31. He also recorded the most starts of of seven innings pitched with one earned run or fewer allowed among all AL pitchers. Over the course of the 2021 season, he attempted pickoffs at first base 141 times more than any other major league pitcher and picked off three runners. Now as we conclude our broadcast, let's talk about 
the Jeopardy and Trivia question of the day as promised. Once again, the trivia question was, who was the Met player who was featured briefly in the movie Men in Black? Well, the correct answer is Bernard Gilkey. Gilkey, congrats to John Tierney on being the first to submit the correct answer. Today's Met final Jeopardy, two clues. As a member of the Philadelphia Phillies, he was selected for the 1999 Major League All-Star Game. And the second clue was traded by the New York Mets to the Braves in exchange for Greg McMichael on November 25, 1996. The correct answer is, who was Paul Berg? Again, John Tierney was the first to get that one right, so congrats to John on sweeping the doubleheader today. Now tonight we have the Texas Rangers coming into town. Uh, game is a 7-10 at beautiful City Field. Uh, hopefully we can get back on track. If you want to watch this game, it's an Apple TV Plus exclusive. So you have to sign up with Apple TV. I believe the games are broadcast for free on the Apple. And uh, the game is being covered, as always, on radio on WCBS. For the Mets, we got Chris Bassett, 6-5 with a 4.01 ERA going on the mound against Glenn Otto, who is 4-3 with a 5.31 ERA. The Rangers come into the game with a record of 36-38. The Metsies come in with a record of 47-29. Should be a good game. We'll be here to talk about it tomorrow. So uh, hopefully you'll be back listening. And uh, as always, thank you so much for listening, and uh, please do subscribe. Enjoy the beautiful weather. Enjoy the day. Maybe a chance of a shower, but I think they'll get the game in. And uh, we'll be back to talk about it all day tomorrow. Take care. Enjoy the day. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife